0: Uh, Grab your Bibles, keep them open at 2 Samuel 14, and we're going to continue our meander through this horrible, horrible breakdown of the kingdom of David. Joab, son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart longed for Absalom, so... Joab, so, Joab sent someone to Tekoa and had a wise woman brought from there. He said to her, Pretend you're in mourning, dress in mourning clothes, and don't use any cosmetic lotions. Act like a woman who has spent many days grieving for the dead. Then go to the king and speak these words to him. Good catch, Evie. And Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman from Tokoa went to the king, she fell with her face to the ground to pay him honour. And she said, help me, your majesty. The king asked her, what's troubling you? She said, I'm a widow. My husband is dead. I, your servant, had two sons. They got into a fight with each other in the field and no one was there to separate them. One struck the other and killed him. Now the whole clan has risen up against your servant. They say, hand over the one who struck his brother down so that we may put him to death. For the life of his brother whom he killed, then we will get rid of the heir as well. They would put out the only burning coal I have left, leaving my husband neither name nor descendant on the face of the earth. king said to the woman, Go home, I'll issue an order on your behalf. But the woman from Tekoa said to him, Let my lord the king pardon me and my family, and let the king and his throne be without guilt. king replied, If anyone says anything to you, bring them to me and they will not bother you again, she said. Then let the king invoke the Lord his God to prevent the avenger of blood from adding to the destruction so that my son will not be destroyed. As surely as the Lord lives, he said, not one hair of your son's head will fall to the ground. Then the woman said, let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. Speak, he replied. The woman said, Why then have you devised a thing like this against the people of God? When the king says this, does he not convict himself? For the king has not brought back his banished son. Like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But that is not what God desires. Rather, he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. And now I've come to say this to my lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. Your servant thought, I will speak to the king. Perhaps he'll grant his servant's request. Perhaps the king will agree to deliver his servant from the hand of the man who is trying to cut off both me and my son from God's inheritance. And now your servant says, may the word of my lord, the king, secure my inheritance. For my lord, the king is like an angel of God in discerning good and evil. May the lord, your God, be with you. Then the king said to the woman, Don't keep from me the answer to what I'm going to ask you. Let the Lord my king speak, the woman said. The king asked, Isn't the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered, Surely as you live, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right or to the left from anything my lord the king says. Yes, it was your servant Joab who instructed me to do this and who put all these words into the mouth of your servant. Your servant, Joab, did this to change the present situation. My Lord has wisdom like that of an angel of God. He knows everything that happens in the land. And she was thinking, please don't kill me. The king said to Joab, Very well, I will do it. Go bring back the young man, Absalom. Joab fell with his face to the ground to pay him honour, and he blessed the king. Joab said... Today your servant knows that he has found favour in your eyes, my lord the king, because the king has granted his servant's request. And Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king said, He must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. In all Israel there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Whenever he cut the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair once a year because it became too heavy for him. He would weigh it and its weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard, a couple of kilos. Three sons and a daughter were born to Absalom. His daughter's name was Tamar and she became a beautiful woman. Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. Then Absalom sent for Joab in order to send him to the king. But Joab refused to come. So he sent a second time, but he refused to come. Then he said to his servants, Look, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab did go to Absalom's house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom said to Joab, Look, I sent word to you and said, come here. So I can send you to the king to ask, why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me if I was still there. Now then, I want to see the king's face. And if I'm guilty of anything, let him put me to death. So Joah went to the king and told him this. Then the king summoned Absalom and he came in and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king and the king kissed Absalom. My goodness, what a mess of a family this is. Everyone angling towards one another to get what they want. No one really confronting issues head on with other people. If you want to write notes, there's a, there's a little outline in your handouts. I wonder, have you ever worked with someone like these people who constantly try to force their own will? on a situation? Have you ever kind of worked with someone like that? Or worse, have you lived with someone who tries to force their own will into situations? It's not pleasant. Lara, my wife, is married to someone like that. I feel for her. It's something by nature I try to do. I try to force my will in certain certain situations. It's something I've had to repent of. And I've had to pray about it, and I've had to work on it. Recently I've been watching an old TV series called Suits, you may have seen it. You're not missing that much if you haven't seen it. Uh, it's based in a high-flying legal firm in New York, a Big Bickies. I enjoy court battles. I enjoy watching human relationships unfold as well. And I wasn't sure I was going to continue to be able to stomach the show as it's full of arrogant people who incessantly think they know everything and they constantly try to assert their will over everyone else. It's just people kind of Conniving and scheming to get what they will, get what they want over everyone else. Gloating about it when they succeed, you know, we pulled a Swifty on that one, let's have a scotch. However, now that I'm a few seasons in, and to its credit, the show is revealing how all of this relational self-assertion is causing everything to unravel in their lives. Their lives are falling apart in the show. One woman loses the man he loves, a woman loses the man... One man loses the woman he loves. A woman loses the man she loves. Her firm begins to unravel. She ends up leaving the firm. A great lie lands one of the main characters in jail and almost costs him his fiance. So now it's it's fascinating because all these lies and treachery is actually bringing about their undoing, which is real life. Their self-assertion and lies and deceit crassly celebrated in the first couple of seasons is now causing their downfall. I wonder, have you ever worked with someone Who constantly tries to force their own will in situations? Or worse, lived with someone who tries to force their own will? Or worse still, are you someone like me who by nature tries to force their own will in relationships? It may be with every good intention, but relationally, it's often, if not always, devastating. As we see in our chapter of god's word today but the good news is that as christians we have been given a better way in relationships let's jump into our bible reading bible passage joab joab was a faithful man he was faithful to his king he was the nephew of the king he was the commander of the king's armies he was a good guy but he was faced with this regal dilemma that the heir to the throne was pretty much in exile from the kingdom. He'd killed his brother because he'd raped their sister and now he'd fled. And the king had done nothing about any of it. We're told he was furious and that's it. He'd done nothing. He's got all the power. He's the king and he's done nothing. He's brought no justice to bear for the sake of his king, for the sake of his daughter, for the sake of his God. And for the sake of his son Absalom took matters into his own hands two years two years later he's in exile he had murdered his brother for the evil that he committed against his sister rather than allowing the king to bring justice to bear and now he's run away it's the king's responsibility to patch things up with his son or to see justice done and have him executed as was the law but he's done nothing about it. He's been inert. Looking at verse 1, we learn that Joab knows that the king's heart longed for Absalom, it says there in the Bible. It doesn't necessarily mean that he missed him and he wished he'd come home and so give him a big hug. The word there longed could mean he longs to punish him, he longs to kind of vent his fury on him for killing his son. We don't really know what that means, that he longed for his son, but he hasn't stopped thinking about him, despite the fact he's done nothing about the relationship with him. So Joab, as Absalom got frustrated with this inactivity, now Joab's frustrated with the king's inactivity, so Joab decides to force his own will in the situation, well-intentioned as it may be, his own deceitful will, And he has this woman brought in from Tekoa to effectively trick the king. So look at verse 2 in your Bibles there. Joab sent someone to Tekoa, had a wise woman brought from there. He said to her, pretend you're in mourning, dress in mourning clothes, don't use any makeup, act like a woman who spent lots of days grieving for the dead. Then go to the king and speak these words. And Joab put the words in her mouth, told her what to say. Now, as you read the words wise woman, Think clever actress. (laughs) Bearing in mind that the word for wise there is the same word used to describe Jonadab, who helped Amnon abuse his own sister. Amnon had an advisor, this is back in the last chapter, Amnon had an advisor named Jonadab, son of Shimi, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man, same word, shrewd, wise, conniving, cunning, deceitful. Joab told the woman to pretend she was in mourning, act like she was grieving, and then say this to the king. Verse 4. When the woman from Tekoa went to the king, she fell with her face to the ground to pay him honour and said, Help me, your majesty. The king said, What's troubling you? She said, I'm a widow. My husband's dead. I had two sons. I got into a fight with each other in the field. There was no one to separate them. One struck the other and killed him. And the whole clan's risen up against me. Hand over the one who struck his brother down, so that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed, then we'll get rid of her. What's The clans, the fake clan wants to kill her fake son for killing her other fake son. And then she says, "You know, they put out the only. are going to take away the last son I've got. I haven't got a husband. I haven't got a son. Well, who knows what she's got? This is all made up. What a performance! And it seems the king's not overly moved at the start. He he doesn't he doesn't do anything about anything. He just says, I'll go home and I'll issue an order on your behalf. What does that mean? It's the politician's response. You know, I'll have my people look at it. We're having our people look into it. What does that mean? We know what it means. You don't really want to deal with it. But the Hollywood actress, she's persistent. Verse 9. The woman from Tokoa said, let my Lord... She keeps flattering him, my Lord, you know. Your servant, My Lord. Let my lord, the king, pardon me and my family. Let the king and his throne be without guilt. Ooh, okay. Now she's accusing him of maybe having guilt. The spineless king feels pressure to up the ante a bit. So verse 10, if anyone says anything to you, bring them to me and I'll not bother you again. And again, the Academy Award nominee persists. Verse 11, let the king invoke the Lord his God. Whoa, can't believe she went there to prevent the avenger of blood from adding to the destruction so that my son will not be destroyed. And also, please don't kill me for asking. This is a big call. You know, call upon your God. She's saying to the king who was chosen by God. God's anointed king. This is a brave woman. This is a brave woman. He has the power to cut off her head just because he feels like it. She's called upon God's king to call upon God himself to act in defense of her pretend family. Now, she's also poked a sore spot when she said to prevent the avenger of blood from adding to the destruction. You see, Absalom was an avenger of blood, was he not? Absalom was in this situation. He, he, he'd killed his sister for what she'd done, and now he deserved to die. According to Numbers 35, the consequences for murder is death, whether you're an avenger of blood or not. So what will the king do? On the one hand, he can see that his son was acting out of retribution for what his brother had done, but on the other hand, he'd killed, and the law says he must die. But we're still talking about this hypothetical story. As surely as the Lord lives, he says, not one hair of your son's head will fall to the ground. So this woman has pressured the king with this fake story to go against his own law to protect her pretend son for committing a pretend murder. He's going to let this murderer off scot-free because this woman's just pressured him a bit. He's just lost, these, lost the plot. What sort of a king is this that an actress from another town can come in and make up a fake story and pressure him into going against his own law? But that's what's happened. In five minutes, she's bent his will to go against his own law and let her son off with murder. The consequences of David's sin way back with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah Are far-reaching and his kingdom is rapidly unravelling and he doesn't know what to do about it this this web of deceit and lies and failure to act is just growing as it does doesn't it if we leave things unchecked if we don't enter into conflict and make things right problems grow and become even more complicated well the courageous actress isn't done with the king yet and the next scene is reminiscent of the prophet Nathan's confrontation of David after, he'd, after David had sinned. The woman said, Let your servant speak a word to the Lord, my king. Speak, he replied. She says, so she calls him on his, on, his, on his action. Why have you devised a thing like this against the people of God? When the king says this, does he not convict himself? For the king has no brought back his banished son and brought back your son. You're going you're gonna to let off my fake son, Scott Free, but you're not doing anything about your son. Like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. Once water spills, you can't put it back in the bottle, right? It's, it's done. But that is not what God desires. Rather, he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. Now, that's not what God desires. God devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him genuine question what is what does this remind you of what springs to mind when you see this anything Any other parts of the bible stories grace yes the fact that god brings us back through christ right anything else the prodigal son yes The father's constantly looking for his son who's absolutely done the wrong thing and when he comes back, he welcomes him home. The other thing that this reminds us of and certainly remind David of was David was pretty much in exile in the wilderness because Saul, the king, wanted to kill him. And God protected him and God brought him back and God reinstated him. So David's in this awkward dilemma where his one and only, where he's, he's one and only son now. He's, he's, his other brother's dead. Well, he's one and only son, but his son is in exile. Does he bring him back? Does he see justice done to his son who committed murder? Well, at the moment, he's just avoiding it completely and doing nothing about it. He is in a dilemma, but the, the solution is not to do nothing. And she actually rightly accuses David of conspiring against the people of God. And that's what he's doing by being so passive when the rule of the kingdom is at stake. Absalom is a rightful heir. There's no succession in plan. This is why Joab's freaking out. Who's going to be king next once David falls off his perch? Why is it that he's willing to forgive and restore her fake son but not forgive and restore his real son? who is the heir. And we are indeed reminded of our loving Lord in heaven who is anything but passive. Our God goes to great lengths to restore his people who have sinned at great expense to himself. He pays a price through the sacrifice of his loving son, Jesus. And we're reminded of this in the prodigal son, the father who loves his son, I reminded this in Saul and David. The woman confronts David so brilliantly, so brilliantly were the words that Joab chose to say. But it's still a great deceit. This is making up a fake story to tell to the king to hopefully get the job done of getting what they want, which is Absalom back in town. Once she confronts the king, she kind of reverses, she reverts back and hides back behind a fake story in verses 15 to 17. I just want you to see, can you see the mess and the pain and the problems that David's lies and deceit and his unwillingness to act have cause? Following his sin of adultery, of murder, he had confessed but now problems are unravelling and he's just unwilling to act. Why? We don't really know. Maybe he feels guilty still about the sin he committed and, you know, who am I to do anything about? You're the forgiven king. That's who you are. You should act. You should sort this out. It's your responsibility to sort this out. But we have no no indication that he ever confessed his sin to Bathsheba or really repented of his sin to her. He didn't confront Amnon in his sin. And so Absalom took things in his own hands. He didn't come for his daughter in her distress after she'd been raped and her life had been destroyed. He didn't approach his son, who we can sympathise with in the murder of his brother. I mean, it's extreme, but his brother committed a terrible crime. And none of this would have happened if the king had just acted and entered into conflict and sorted it out rather than avoiding These people are stepping up and stepping into this leadership vacuum that the king has left. We've all seen it before, haven't we? In our workplaces, in our homes, perhaps even in ourselves. Abrogating responsibility because we don't want to deal with it or, frustratedly, we step in and take leadership when we shouldn't because someone else is abrogating responsibility. Right Well, last time David was confronted like this by Nathan the Prophet, there was genuine repentance and a change of attitude, it seemed, in the moment. And we're right to expect this will happen again. So let's see what happens. He's being confronted. Let's see what happens. The King asked, "Isn't the hand of Job with you in all this?" And the woman said, "Yes." As surely as you live, my lord the king, no one can turn the right or left from anything. My lord the king says, yes, it was Joab who instructed me to do this. He put the words in my mouth. Your servant Joab did this to change, you know. He's your servant. (laughs) Don't kill him. My lord has wisdom. Don't kill me. Like that of an angel of God. She's doing her best (laughs) to flatter the king. She knows she's in trouble here. He's figured out it's all a lie. The king said to Joab, very well. I'll do it. Go bring back the young man, Absalom. It worked. Can you believe it? Awesome. The king may have the emotional intelligence of a doorstop, but he puts two and two together here and he works out that his beloved commander and nephew has put the woman up to this. How else would such a a woman have an audience with the king in the first place? But thankfully he concedes. He's going to bring Absalom back. It's all going to be okay. Okay. so it seems absalom's called back to town joab's relieved it looks like the king's learned his lesson he's going to work it out verse 21 david's scheme what don't you mean david's loving and godly plan of repentance and reconciliation with his son no david's scheme Verse 21, king said to Joab, very well, I'll do it. Go bring the young man Absalom. Joab fell with his face to the ground. He paid him honour. He blessed the king. He said, today your servant knows he's found favour in your eyes. My lord, the king, the king has granted his servant's request. The Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. Praise God. They must have had such a good chat on the road on the way back. I can't believe it's been years. You're coming back. This is going to be great. That's what we are right to expect. Joab expected this. For sure. It's this Jacob and Esau reunion type moment, we think. Jacob, son of Isaac, tricked his brother Esau out of his birthright as the eldest child. And Esau hated for him and they were separated for years and they didn't speak for years. But then they came back together and Jacob was rightly repentant and Esau was rightly Forgiving, and there's this beautiful moment in Genesis chapter 33. He, Jacob himself, went on ahead and he bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him and he threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him and they wept. And it was lovely. It's beautiful scene of repentance of forgiveness and reconciliation. And I'll bet that Joab, the fearsome commander of David's armies, is weeping. This tough guy, I bet he's weeping on the way back. He's like, okay, this is great. You're coming back. The kingdom is safe. You're going to be restored. <sighs> finally, finally, we're seeing some action. The scheme, though deceitful, seems to have worked. Sometimes deceit works right and it's worthwhile. <laughs> no. <laughs> Verse 24, but... The king said, he must go to his own house and he must not see my face. Kidding me. So Absalom went to his own house. He didn't see the face of the king. That's it. What a schemer. Yep, bring him back. Sure. Yeah, bring him back, Job. That's good. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, bring him back. Okay, great. Awesome. But he's not to see my face. I'm not going to deal with anything. He can come back to town. You want to come back to town? Sure, bring him back to town. I'm not talking to him. Seemingly still furious at the murder of his son. He hasn't got the stomach to see his, this son executed, perhaps. Longing to be reunited, maybe, but he hasn't got the heart to forgive. Don't know. David will not enter into conflict and address his relational problems. He schemes, and he abrogates responsibility. This is all too common, and we know it. It's easier just to avoid people, if possible. It's easier at work to just take a lunch break at a different time to the guy you can't stand, than to deal with him, and face up, and talk about your problems. It's easier to sit on the other side of the room from the woman at church who hurt you those years ago, and you never talked about it, and she never apologised, and you never forgave her, and so you just avoid our church is smallish it's harder in our church but if we had 300 people in our church it'd be easier and it can happen in marriage I mean we're in a pretty close space in marriage so we can't avoid each other in that way but we can avoid problems Just not deal with things. Just sweep them under the carpet. Another thing under the carpet. It's getting lumpy, the carpet. Sweep it under the carpet. Don't talk about it. Abrogate responsibility too hard. Just avoid. And then we devise schemes to get around these problems that we're not talking about in our marriage rather than tackling it head on. Well... Absalom's back in town. Guess what? Another scheme. He's on the boil. He's still not in a relationship with his dad. He's not happy about it. You know, he just wants to see some sort of resolution. Kill me, don't kill me, do something. So he hatches a scheme to get what he wants. That's what you do. Absalom, we're told, is Lafabio as a family. The most beautiful man in the cosmos. He's super good looking. He's got this luscious hair. He has to cut it once a year because it gets too heavy for his head. So he's got to cut it off. It's funny, eh? Two kilos-ish of hair. That's a lot of hair. Uh, It kind of seems like funny details. You can't help but think of Samson. You know, Samson was awesome and he had the hair thing. But what else do we know about Samson? Didn't really submit to God. Really. Didn't really do what God told him to do in fact whenever a character in the Bible is kind of presented as good-looking impressive to the eye we ought to be nervous Saul was impressive he was tall a head taller than everyone else we're told and the people wanted him as king he's going to be awesome he's going to just smash everyone but he didn't submit to the Lord so got this good-looking guy be worried How is Jesus described? Isaiah 53. We looked at it this morning. Um, Lara and I just perfectly planned that. Not, we didn't. God's God's kindness. This is how Jesus described in Isaiah 53. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Because we're told he's good-looking, we must expect him to fail. And fail he does, as we'll see. We're told that he named one of his daughters after his sister, Tamar, which is, that's nice. She's had a very rough life. It would be nice for her to have a niece named after her. It's also a brutal reminder. I mean, it's an interesting detail to throw in there. And it's a brutal reminder of a big part of what This whole problem is what's the root cause of this problem is what amnon did and what absalom did and what david didn't do to sort it out so we're reminded about that by the author so we hear of the beautiful absalom's self-centered scheme in verse 28 if you've got a bible have a look absalom lived two years in jerusalem can you imagine it the agony your father being just over there in the, in the palace and you're not talking and without seeing the king's face. Absalom sent for Joab in order to send him to the king, to get him to get to the king. Joab refused to come. He sent him a second time, refused to come. He said to his servants, look, Joab's field's next to mine. He's got barley there. Go and set it on fire. Set it on fire. So Absalom's servants did what they were told at least. Two years, King David's continued to sit on his hands. They must be numb by now. Two more years of inactivity and you, you can believe it, can't you? Time goes by when we get hurt and we don't want to talk about it, and we don't want to address it, so we just avoid it and the bitterness grows and that first step back into right relationship just gets harder and harder and harder. The conflict grows, the avoidance grows. just gets harder and harder the longer we leave it. Two years Absalom's had enough he decides that's it I'm going to take matters into my own hands again worked beautifully last time when I killed my brother he decides Joab's the way back to dad he calls for Joab doesn't come he calls again Joab refuses so he sets his fields on fire I mean that's what you do right Gav, I need to talk to you. Sorry, I'm not coming. Gav, we really need to talk. I say, forget it. We're not talking. So you set my house on fire. I mean, that's what you do. It's the obvious next step. It's comical. Well, it works. Joab Joab comes over. Bing bong. Why did you set my field on fire? Well, because you didn't come. (laughs) Why else? I mean, it's what you do. Verse 32, Absalom said to Joab, Look, I sent a word to you and said, Come here, so I can send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me if I was still there. Now then, I want to see the king's face. And if I'm guilty of anything, let him put me to death. If I'm guilty of anything. You killed someone. Now, he'd probably moved on with his life. He's got kids. He's got a family. He's probably moved on in Geshur. Started a business, doing well. And then Joab reefs him back to town. But his dad doesn't want to see him. And, you know, I can understand his frustration. I wouldn't set something on fire in response, but I can understand his frustration. He knows he's guilty. And I think what he's saying is, if you know, if if you're going to condemn me, can we just get it done? You know, can we have some resolution here, please, dad, supposed king? Supposed anointed one by God. If I'm guilty, kill me. If I'm not guilty, can we just patch this thing up and get on with our lives? He's furious at the apathy. Ah, oh, the apathy. Isn't it horrible? It's cowardly. It's unloving. For David not to confront his own failings and his own demons and then put things right with those he's supposed to love. Firstly, his family. Secondly, the whole kingdom is at stake here. So Joab went to the king and he told him what Absalom said. I'm not sure if he mentioned that he said his field on fire or not. But the king summoned Absalom. Oh my goodness, here we go. Here we go, everyone. Absalom came in, he did the right thing. He bowed down with his face to the ground before the king. He's the king. And the king kissed Absalom. That's all i have got. I kissed him. On the cheek, on the forehead, I don't know. There was no conversation, there was no, let's talk this through, there was no reconciliation, there was no restoration. David brings him in. It's not like Jacob and Esau, there's no tears. There's no weeping and hugs and... It's not like the prodigal son. There's no ring and sandals and coat and feast. There's a curt, cold kiss and that's it. I wonder if you've ever received an unfeeling kiss or hug from someone who's supposed to love you but they fail in their duty and they kind of give you this cold... You prefer a slap in the face at that moment, you know what I mean? Just, you know... You don't want to do this, so don't. That's what's happening. And to Absalom, it feels like a slap in the face. He would prefer to slap in the face at this point. Don't. If you don't really want to, then don't. And next week, we'll see Absalom's response. He takes matters into his own hand big time in the next couple of chapters. Well, friends, what does this mean for us? As followers of Jesus, we have a better way of relating to one another than this train wreck. We have a much better way. We have the Holy Spirit helping us to relate better to one another in all of our relationships. As brothers and sisters in Christ, as marrieds, in the world, we have a better way to relate to one another. We have God's Word guiding us on how to relate to one another better how to love one another a whole lot better than this. We have a better way. Praise God. The world doesn't. But we do. We have the best way. Because it's come from God. Philippians 2 says this, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, we have all those things from God... Make my joy complete by being like-minded with Christ, having the same love, being one in spirit, of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. God is good He loves you. He's in control of all things. We don't need to force our hand in relationships. We can trust God in relationships. God's given us all we need. We don't need to force our hand to get more of what we think we need. We have all we need from God. We have forgiveness of sins. We have hope of eternity. We have God's empowering presence. In our lives. Because of Him, we've been freed up to not need to grab at for ourselves, but rather to just love. We are we are overflowing and able to get just to give, to love in all situations at all times, because of God's love for us. And these words in Philippians, they're not restricted to the nice people at church. The hard-working people at work that are easy to love. The loving people at home that are easy to love. These words are not restricted to anyone. These words are for everyone. Do nothing out of selfish motives ever in any circumstance. Not at home, not at work, not at church, not anywhere else. Do nothing selfish. Value all others above yourself. Even that fool who cut you off in traffic. Twice. Love him. Above yourself. Don't tailgate him. Don't tailgate him. Love him. The noisy neighbours who party till two in the morning. Oh, take their bins in for them when they've forgotten. Oh, it hurts, it burns. Value all others above yourself. Your family member who said those cutting words, and they should have known better, but they did it anyway. Value all others above yourself. Don't take matters into your own hands. Don't devise schemes to get what you want in relationships. Trust God and value all others above yourselves. Joab was scared. He was scared for the kingdom. A kingdom that the almighty God had put in place. He chose David. Joab knew that. God's got this. You don't need to be scared, Joab. Pray and trust. But Joab didn't trust. He forced his own will. David was weak in his relationships. He should have trusted God. God loves me. I sinned and it was horrendous. I repented. The consequences, I need to keep trusting God... I need to keep trusting that I'm loved and forgiven so that I can love others rather than avoid conflict. But he was weak. He didn't trust God. His guilt remained and it impacted the decisions he made. Absalom's just super arrogant. Arrogant. Thinks he knows what's best. Takes matters into his own hands because he thinks he knows what's best. Doesn't care about other people. I'll set your house on fire if I have to to get what I want literally how can you do better how can you do better at home at work at church you are loved by God you are forgiven for all of your sins through faith in Jesus God has given you all you need you have all the resources at your disposal to love others in every situation even if they've wronged you even if they're abrogating responsibility, even if they're being arrogant. You don't need to deal with it. God will deal with it. We have God's Holy Spirit. Our futures is assured. Trust God with situations. Trust God with people. Feel confident to just love and serve others and value all others above yourself. And what a joy it is to be in a family of people like ours who are doing this, largely trying to do this. We're imperfect at it, don't get me wrong. We're going to make mistakes, we're going to hurt one another. But what a joy to be together when we're all trying to love one another more than ourselves. Let me pray. Loving Father and Almighty God, we thank you that you are in control. God, we forget sometimes that you're in control. So please remind us by your Holy Spirit, help us to trust you when we're in difficult situations, when we've been hurt when we feel like taking matters into our own hands, work in us by your spirit, Lord. Help us to pray, help us to trust, help us to love other people unconditionally in the same way that you loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.